Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. This is Megan and Jen. Here we are bringing you stories of weird and wild nature and man's interactions with them. Wow. Amazing intro, Megan. Thank you very much. I practiced that many times. Um, We've been trying to figure out how to do our intro and I felt like that was... That was pretty solid. We have a correction from last week, Jen. Let's just say that sometimes biology vocabulary is hard. And we're on such a wavelength that you said it and I didn't catch it at all. No. I was just like, yep, doop, 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 doop. And then later even used the same terminology. Again. Even right. though on the daily, we talk about this. When I listened to it after you had edited, I was like, and no, it was our friend was like, hey, hey, that's the wrong one. And I then we listened to it. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're totally geniuses. It's cut out of the episode. We cut it. But if you caught it, we were talking about extinct species. And then you were saying, or extant. And what you meant was... Extirpated. Yes. Which are species that are extinct. Or so like wherever their range Wherever is. their range yeah. is. But they're found in other places. Right. So maybe they're in a zoo or they're on another... Right. So like the Micronesian kingfisher is not here anymore but they are still in existence elsewhere in other places yes correct yeah. yeah so that's your vocabulary lesson for the day i love that we were like we're like oh yeah do people totally. know that yeah like we're so smart we're educating you <laughs> <laughs> wrong it's terrible it's fine it happens a lot you know when you write things and then you send it to someone for review and then they're like and you say hell? it with such confidence yes the like level of this, confidence this is right just to note this i'm wearing a t-shirt that says no karen's allowed <laughs> and it was like isn't that kind of a karen moment to be it, like i am right i mean maybe <laughs> like a biology karen maybe this is how it is okay <laughs> yeah but and just to note that Megan is wearing a Nightmare Before Christmas glow-in-the-dark t-shirt. Glow-in-the-dark t-shirt, yeah. It's I just, my favorite. It's a very, uh, this is who we are, people. Deal with it. I think that's the only thing we have to talk about as far as like corrections go. And then we didn't need to talk about it. We didn't. Because we I was like, Megan, cut it. <laughs> <laughs> so she cut it. But we were worried because I think recently we had someone follow us on Instagram who's like a biologist, some They're kind of evolutionary, evolutionary biologist. biologist. We're like, oh, shit. And we're like, oh, man, now we have to be smart. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> but like, like the real deal people on here. Yeah. I think that we cover it, though, when we say we're unrenowned. Look, we're just human beings. We're going to be doing a shout out at the end for our new patron. Yes. On the Patreon. And thank you to our patrons. If you want to hear some, I know we say this, but if you want to hear some bonus episodes that are bonus. not out there on any of the other streaming platforms. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can go to our Patreon site and sign up Mm -hmm. and listen to those bonus episodes there'll be another one coming out this month yay Yay. that you're doing yes i'm doing and i know what i'm going to talk about and it's super interesting and crazy and i can't wait i'm stoked Jen, are you ready for some science news of the week? I am so ready. I see you have your nature magazine out. A nature conservancy magazine? All right, listen. Oh, nature conservancy. Okay, yeah, she's holding it. She looks very renowned. I did not look on the internet for this. It came in my mailbox. She has this like nice side part and the hair is looking really it's fluffy bougie today. and nice today. She's got her magazine article. I'm you guys, also wearing rings today. Listen I up. Mean, this is, oh, you have rings on? I know. This is, Girl. I, it's a whole nother level. 
It's All a right. whole nother level. Let's okay. do this. So I'm going to talk about some fireflies today. Are you I, ready? I love fireflies. I know, don't you? And you know where I saw them? Well, I mean, they have them in Oklahoma, but mm-hmm. I remember them so well from Georgia. Yeah. Which is where you're from. It, yes. Okay. And they're beautiful there. This particular story is about the Tennessee fireflies or lightning bugs. So did you know that there are roughly 2,000 species of fireflies, Jen? No. See, here we are again. Insects. Amazing. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. And that they have their own characteristic flash pattern. So they're like little butt butts light up. Uh, like doop 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 or doop or doop like some crazy morse code yeah wow some of them glow in unison as part of their mating ritual yeah so sweet it's super sweet that's what you're seeing when they're lighting up is like they're like what's up baby they're like over here over here let's get it on what's a little firefly from princess and the frog oh yeah it's so cute i don't buy you fireflies Mm -hmm. Very sadly, there are some threats to fireflies. Of course, number one threat, habitat loss. Always. Pesticides. And then kind of weirdly, the tourism industry that is around looking at fireflies has been an issue for fireflies because so many people come to look at them when they're in like mating season and lighting all up and it's so beautiful and the fireflies that are at like lower levels in the forest sometimes get trampled and then people using flashlights or bright lights from their cars uh, causes issues with the fireflies to see each other and mate properly so their oh numbers have been gosh. declining. Isn't that crazy? And people, then I know people, always the people because of 2020 and we were all locked down at home. Mm-hmm. The fucking fireflies came back like there's more of them now. So they Aww. have like a little uptick in their numbers because no one was coming out to see them because we couldn't. Nature we were... loves when we go away. So there's this lady, Lynn Faust. She's a firefly field guide and author and researcher. She spent decades studying fireflies. And she says more males and females found one another in the darkness. So more eggs were laid and more clutches likely to survive because of the events from 2020. That's so great. Uh, So but they're saying only time will tell. But more important than a temporary breather is the ongoing land protection work in the region. So uh, they just wanted to highlight that the land needs to be protected from habitat destruction. And that if you're going to go see fireflies, like these big groups of fireflies mating, Mm-hmm. Like, be respectful. Don't bring bright lights. Yes. Yeah. And don't trample them. Oh. Why are they on the ground? Well, because they're like lower. Okay. You know, so it's like kids running around or things. And going catching in. them in jars and stealing them. Probably. Who from knows? their mates. Is, yeah. Is is uh, firefly napping a part of their destruction? Likely. I feel like. Yeah. yeah. Because that's like a thing that kids do is put them in a jar, take them home. And then watch them until they die. Let's not do that. Yeah, so this came from an article in the Nature Conservancy magazine because I made a donation to them in order to get some recycled, reusable bags. Nice. That's always fun to make a donation and get something cool back. Apparently, I donated enough that I now get this, like, I think it's a quarterly magazine. Oh. I know. So I feel like, oh, I'm just sitting at home flipping through magazines. I miss that. And now we just flip through our phones, our tablets, but I miss magazines. All that good time. I still read books, like real life books. Well, whenever I buy new books now, I always am like, oh, I'm going to get the hard cover because I want it to sit on my bookshelf nicely. Oh, right. Well, yeah. And then when they fall on your face as you're falling asleep, (laughs) trying to read (laughs) them, it's not pleasant. What's worse, the hard cover or your phone? The hard cover. Yeah, definitely. definitely. It's got the pointy edges. It's got the pointy edges. (laughs) It's just straight into your forehead. Anyway, fireflies are great. Thanks for that. I mean, that's like one story Mm -hmm. of all the stories of wildlife 
coming back. Sea turtle nesting? Because no one was going to the beach. If they see some movement up on the beach, because mm-hmm. they'll kind of be out there and they'll they'll look up. And if they see a lot happening, they're not going to they're, they're like, not going to go eh, up. They're like, nope, nope. And also, I mean, if people have their lights and they're active, hatchlings will come out and go down regardless. But mm-hmm. if people have their lights and mess up their trajectory, because they're supposed to just follow the moonlight on the water and go straight out. Or look at the horizon, so and they look at light for that. So a lot of people know about lights and baby Turtles. hatchlings. I can tell you that at night in the dark, if you would sit, and this is as a researcher, not as a person just messing around, please don't do this. You know, if you just didn't move and mm-hmm. were like, I'm just a rock, <laughs> they really couldn't tell the difference and they would just go right past you. So if you just sit perfectly still. I mean, I, I think that's good advice for anything. If you're going to be in nature, just sit perfectly still. Sit perfectly still. Don't move. But wouldn't bears still attack you? That might not be. I don't know. Like playing dead kind of thing. I guess it depends on the kind of bear. I listened to a story on Backpacker, the Out Alive mm-hmm. uh, podcast. And it was this kid talking about, I mean, he was literally a kid when it happened, like 17. He got attacked by a grizzly. Thought he was going to die for sure. Mm-hmm. But he laid there and the grizzly thinking that he was dead, there's no more threat here left. Oh, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, I guess it depends on how the bear is attacking you, if it's for food or for safety. Yes, you don't want it to be for food. Right, because they're just not going to stop. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> you're eaten. Yeah, thanks for that. That was a great science news. I'm ready for a Are you ready for week. an amazing story? I'm going to buckle in. I have like a little idea about what you're going to talk about. Well, because I know there's another story that you were thinking of talking about that might have been similar and I didn't want us to like throw them in Mm -hmm. back to back. I had to ask you, but you said, go for it. You're not going to do it. So now I've totally screwed up your plans. No, no, no. Well, I still haven't listened to the whole book. That's why. Oh, okay. Weeks later. Well, it takes a lot of time. You know, I got to give it to you. You edit all this stuff and you've even gone back and edited (laughs) older stuff, which is like a whole thing. So we got a message, which we do occasionally from time to time Mm -hmm. on the Instagrams. We got a message from someone in New Zealand, which is exciting. I'm just so glad that we have a listener in New Zealand. She mentioned that she just started listening to the podcast and she really enjoyed it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try and do a story based in New Zealand. This is for her. Oh, right. I won't use her name because I didn't ask her, but (laughs) she'll know. This is a pretty famous story about the Rose Noel, which was a yacht. It's actually a trimaran and had capsized and four men were at sea for 119 days. This is the story I'm going to tell. And some people may know this story, especially if you're from New Zealand or in that area. If not, here we go. The Rose Noel was built by a man named John Glennie. He was really into sailing and he um, he's from New Zealand. And when he was younger, him and his brother had built a trimaran. So a trimaran is like a double outrigger. So it has like two floaties on each side, right? When you think of like like, a Hawaiian boat. Yeah. When you think of an outrigger canoe, it's got like the ayakus, which kind of go out and hold the ama, Mm -hmm. which is that long floaty piece. For like balance. Yeah, for balance. So you have the canoe and then the ayakus and the ama. Okay. Okay. So this one would be considered, when you think of a catamaran and that they are a little bit different, they have like the floats. Mm-hmm. This is, um, so this is like a multi-hull boat. So it's comprised of a main hull and then two smaller outrigger hulls or floats on the side. Like the boat from Waterworld. Never watched it. Not a oh big fan. God. I, I love just, that Just movie. like the preview back then, I was like, Bleh. 
you know, there's like ancient trimarans where they have double, Mm -hmm. you know, outriggers, of course. But the modern ones are kind of, they're also sailing yachts. And it's, you know, designed for like recreational or racing. There's some that are used like ferries and even warships, which is kind of crazy. They originated from traditional double outrigger hulls from Austronesian cultures or like maritime cultures from Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. particularly in like uh, Philippines and Indonesia. Now, when people make them, they're fast Mm -hmm. and they will always float. They're unsinkable. I mean, unless you were to like completely pierce, like break those holes, I guess. They're kind of like unflippable. They're not unflippable. They're unsinkable. Okay. If they do capsize, like flip over, they're mm-hmm. they're basically impossible to flip upright. Oh. I mean, you could do it, but you need to be able to like tie something, flip it over, and it's going to cause a lot of damage to the mast and the rigging. I mean, they're designed to be flipped, but not, I mean, it's really, it's, hard. It's really hard. It would be impossible to do if you're like out in the water. Right. I mean, I have a single, it's called a, v- a V1 Ava'a with a little mm-hmm. outrigger. Mm-hmm. And even if I, I'm just so always so scared to flip or what they call in Hawaiian like huli on it because right. it's really hard to get it back over. And then it's just full of water and you're just like bailing water and you're sad. But anyway, <laughs> this guy, John Glennie, he was really into that. And when he was younger, him and his brother built an 11 meter trimaran in 1964 in their parents' backyard, which is pretty cool. And then they sailed it 40,000 miles for, for seven years, they just sailed around um, as um, self-proclaimed playboys. <laughs> what? They were just being dudes and being like, oh, yeah, I was just sailing around. And what years were they doing this? Late 60s, early 70s. I can see it. Totally. They did that. And then later, he started building a trimaran that was much bigger. It, well, not much bigger, but it was almost 13 meters long. Um, it took him 19 years to build this guy John Glennie and $300,000 and he built it in Sydney. This became his home, the ultimate bachelor pad. He completely designed it. I mean, obviously it took him a long time. It was really, really fancy. Did it have those things where you press like a button on the wall, the bar flips over into a bed (laughs) with like lights. (laughs) Lights and it like the bed spins slowly. It's like a water bed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Almost. It was pretty sweet. It had a color TV, Megan. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, Look at that guy. Anyway, I watched this documentary um, and he described himself as different. He says, I've never drank a glass of beer. I don't like the smell of it. You know, besides like that's what everybody else, they work it all day and then they go to the pub and they spend all their money. He's like, I would rather spend my money on my dreams because that lasts much longer. Good on you, John. Ambition. Totally. So he built this dream trimaran and he named it the Rose Noel. And he says that he named it the Rose Noel after this Tahitian beauty queen that maybe he met during his Playboy years. And she was Miss July in a 1968 Tahiti festival. And they have pictures of her. She is completely beautiful. According to him, he said, yeah, yeah, she was supposed to come over to Australia to see me, but she died in a plane crash in 1973, this Pan Am crash on Tahiti. That's so tragic. But I looked it up and I got the, I looked at the manifest And I'm just saying, like, who knows? Maybe I was looking at the wrong 1973 Pan Am flight that crashed in Tahiti. Mm -hmm. But her name was not on the list. Well, there was no Rose Noel on the list. So I'm like, either she completely ghosted him. (laughs) Or maybe she did. Right. I don't know. Either way. Yeah. Yikes. You know, she's like, somebody just tell him I died in that plane crash. Because... (laughs) 
I hope she ghosted him. Yeah. I hope she's still around because it's still not being that, beautiful and awesome and right? just completely made that up. Because <laughs> if not, that's it's tragic. tragic. Yeah, it's yeah. so tragic. But I really looked like over and over again at the list of people who were on the plane and I mm-hmm. saw nothing to do with Rose or Noel. Nothing or an RN or anything. I don't know. It's very interesting. Could have been the wrong manifest. It's true. She could have had a stage name. Maybe there was more than one Pan Am crash in Tahiti in 1973. It's possible. I don't know. This guy, John Glennie, once he finishes his, you know, the Rose Noel, and he feels like it's good luck because he named it after her. Okay. I mean, as we begin our story. I'm sure she's beautiful and everything, but I don't know if I, like, if she had died, is that well? He's thinking like luck? she's looking over him. Oh, okay. From the heavens, sure, and wishing him the best. Mm-hmm. But if in in fact she was never on the plane and she just completely ditched him, then maybe it's bad luck. Totally, well, we're speculating like we do. <laughs> anyway, interesting because we know the story doesn't go so well. Well, it's on this show. So. It's on the show, so <laughs> cannot. So in 1989, he sails the Rose Noel to Picton in New Zealand. And he is like ready to basically live on his trimaran, live on the the boat and just sail around and be a playboy again, once again. He's like 47 at this point. Maybe he has like a ponytail. I don't know. He's just, <laughs> he, he's just ready to roll. Wait, what year is this again? I'm sorry. 1989. Definite ponytail. Yeah. Definite acoustic guitar someplace on that boat. Yes, he's ready. He decides that he is going to make his first trip is going to be a short trip to Tonga. Now this from New Zealand, it is a short trip. It should mm-hmm. only take three weeks to go to Tonga, but he needs a crew. So he starts kind of like putting the word out or kind of looking around and he's really actually in a hurry because it's may 1989 their winter is coming up so he knows that they're starting to get into bad weather season so he's trying to do it quickly and get a crew together quickly so the weather coming up from the south will kind of push them up because they're going north um so he meets this guy named phil hoffman and phil hoffman is a married guy he's why are you looking weird like that that name sounds really familiar i think you're thinking of phil hartman oh our beloved phil hartman oh also Um, tragic story yes seriously phil hoffman is 42 and he's got four kids and he's and him and his wife are actually living at the same living on their yacht um, with their kids and right there in Picton. And so they're kind of at the same marina. Mm-hmm. And so that's how he meets John Glennie. So Phil is not a playboy. Phil is not a playboy. He's a family man. He is the family man. He had never left, sailed outside of the waters around New Zealand. They love it. They love being on the boat, sailing around, but not not a long distance or any. But sure. he, he wanted to. So when John Glennie was like, hey, hey, I'm just going to do this trip to Tonga. I'm looking for a crew. Do you want to go? He's like, hell yeah. And his wife was like, go for it. That sounds great. This is like a little cute backstory that Phil and his wife, Karen, met when they were kids. Cool. Because I read an article where she talked about him and that she was like 11 when she first met. They were, you know, first met and like little kids and friends. And that they grew up in the same Auckland suburb. And when she was 17, they don't say how old he was, but I think they're around the same age, but Mm -hmm. um, they got married and they've been together and they have total five kids together. Mm -hmm. But they, at this time, they had four and they were living on the boat and sailing around just kind of cruising around New Zealand with their kids that's cute so yeah it's pretty cool John Glennie had also posted a note in one of the backpacker like local backpacker places maybe a hostel it doesn't say but that he was looking for a crew and so that's how he met this guy named Rick Hellregal I think that's how you say it so Rick 
was married as well. He had a wife. They had a seven-month-old baby. And he was working with this kayaking business. I think he had his own business, like taking people out on sea kayaks. And But he had also worked with this organization called, he was an instructor with Outward Bound New Zealand. And that's a nonprofit organization. It was formed in 1962 to provide experiential education in New Zealand. So it's like they try to bring people, you know, into the outdoors mm-hmm. and challenge them and all that. Is it the same Outward Bound as what we have in the US? I'm not sure. It's like you go out and you do things in wilderness and sometimes they teach you kind of like life skills out there or uh, survival skills, a little bit survival skills. I think, yeah. Yeah. Then it's probably probably the the same same thing. Yeah, it's probably the same thing. One thing about Rick is he had had a brain tumor that he survived. I mean, he was recovered from um, three years previous. So I think his wife, because of all he went through with that um, and they had this baby and she's like, you know, go do this. Go do your thing. Have fun. You've been through a lot. You've been through a lot. And in the documentary I watched, she was really cool. She was just like, yeah, I just wanted him to go like have a good experience. So Rick was on board and then they needed another person. So he invited his friend James or Jim Nalpka. Jim was the the token American. He's from Minnesota. Score. But he had worked. So somehow he ended up uh, working in New Zealand as a chef for the Outward Bound program. So probably he's just like, I really want to go to New Zealand. And he went there and found some random job and stayed. He just makes scrambled eggs for our bound. I mean, anything to get to New Zealand. And grits. I remember when we were finishing up Peace Corps, I was looking for opportunities in New Zealand. I was like, I'll go shave some alpacas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what is the program where you go and you work on people's farms? Your brother did it. It's wolfing. Wolfing, yeah. Yes. So it's the world, uh, worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Yeah. So I was looking into that. I was like, I'm going to do that. Because, you know, when you I was finished with Peace Corps, I was like, oh, do something. Right, right, right. Do something cool. But then I got more funding for the sea, sea turtle, turtle stuff, stuff. So I stayed. But yeah, yeah, did your brother, was he doing that or was he, what no, was he doing? No, I mean, I don't think he looked on that network. I would have to ask him, but he just kind of like went to this farm where they didn't wear shoes and they did a lot of yoga and they, it was like <laughs> organic stuff. I mean, that's kind of what, I, he, he like hippied it out for oh, a little well, bit. Yeah. Cool. I think he really liked it though, kind of. You know, those are some of the things that I wish I had had the opportunity to do. I mm-hmm. could have done it, like I said, but you know, yeah, yeah. when you get funding to do turtle work you stay you do it do sea turtle yeah work. jim from minnesota he had never been on like he had no maritime abilities he had never crewed a boat he wasn't really familiar with it but he was like it's totally sweet let's do this i'm <laughs> i'm in i'm in i would do that too i'd be like yeah let's go i'm going to tonga sounds good like it doesn't i mean you guys just tell me what to do i'll do it this is where I got the majority of this stuff. And there's mm-hmm. links to all the other articles that I pulled information from. But mainly, I watched this documentary called Back from the Dead, The Saga of the Rose Noel. And it's from 1996. So in this, they interview everybody. So you're getting mm-hmm. interviews from the four men. So not to ruin everything, but they, they live. So Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. But oh, one thing about live, though. one thing about Jim is he has the sweetest mullet in this documentary. It's like not only is it a mullet, but it's super floofy. <laughs> it's spot on. I mean, there is definitely I don't know. I would say the front has a little party in it. Definitely party in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Business in the front. You know, but let's have fun while we're doing business. I mean, it's it's kind of got that. You just have to feel. appreciate a good mullet, honestly. Yeah. And let the American be the one to, to have the, be- the best mullet. 100%. Although I feel like Australians. Well, I, I think about Australians, people who live like in the outback, 
right. as just having mullets. I think that people who listen to all of our episodes might think we're slightly obsessed with mullets. Maybe. There could be some truth to that. I understand. So just real quick, do you remember <laughs> when we were Peace Corps and the area that we were in with some islands? Mm-hmm. There were a lot of mullets. There were a lot of mullets. A lot. Like everywhere you looked, there you were... would see in different cut styles and there were rat tails. Oh my God. The rat braids. tails. Jen, the rat tails. Because it wasn't just a rat tail. at the. You know, like when I would go to high school, there'd be like that one kid who took shop class all the time and he had a rat tail. Mm-hmm. And it was was just right in the middle of his neck oh, and yeah. down but not where we were it was like rat tails out the side of your head oh, rat just tails whatever you the, just, just express yourself it's really what it, it was. was amazing so it's not tied to the culture so we're not no. there's no making fun of it was just that's what people people were wanted into. to do yeah and, and it was still cool like it was so i wanted to make a coffee table book of just photos yes of manly mullets <laughs> Yeah, because it was it was men. It was like, only men, or there like, were just more masculine ladies, and they would have. Oh, they had some. Right, sweet there mullets. were some. Yeah, and the poof, like they, I think the hair, the hair type in that region, right? Just like the poof is like really. Good. Oh, it's spot on. Yeah. You can I mean, you can do a lot, and you yeah. know the. So it's like when I remember being in elementary school, mm-hmm. and I remember this kid got a mullet, had a mullet with, and his mom permed the back, so it had the permed back with this kind of spiky front. That's perfect. It was. It was good. You know, that's what it is. It's the texture, Jen. It's, it's the texture it's of the mullet texture. that really... I mean, if you have some flat mullet that's just kind of like thin... No, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, that, that's... Like, Megan, I feel like you could pull off a pretty sweet mullet. I think I'm almost there, Jen. I... I mean, honestly. Really? Let's just let's just go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are right now. I mean, I, what, the next time I get my bangs trimmed, it's just going to be full on. Well, I remember when you were telling me, you're like, I just want to, I think I'm going to go with a shag. Yeah. And she has very curly hair. And I'm like, isn't that just essentially a mullet? It's like one step, one <laughs> step more. It's just a little more cut on the side. And then your mullet uh, town, mullet city. All right, everyone, we're sorry. We digressed. But I'm going to get back to the story. I mean, anyway, just if you can find this documentary, you'll see what I mean. And you'll enjoy it. But he's a super cool guy. Like, really cool, really nice guy. Let me just throw so this not out. Not anything bad. It's just the time. <laughs> Let me just throw this out there that a mullet and a Fu Manchu together. Mm. Done deal. Done. There it is. There it is, everybody. <laughs> Must like cats. Okay, so everybody was like, we're going to Tonga. And one thing that Jim, when he talks about, because he's in the documentary quite a bit, and mm-hmm. I really liked him. It wasn't just the mullet that drew me in. He's just a <laughs> super nice guy. And he was like, man, when I saw this trimaran, this, the Rose Noel was amazing. Mm-hmm. He's like blown away. He's like, and, it, and there, I'll post some pictures of the inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, for 1989, it's super nice. Like it had everything. Color TV, beautiful kitchen. He's like, it was like the best. Like you were going to, he's like, like you were going to be going in a limo all the way there, like going in style. So James, Jim and Rick are the only two that really knew each other. And everybody else, they were strangers. So these two knew each other. They had a background, but the rest were just like, whatever. We're just, we're going to do this. We're going to bro down and be friends by the end. Rick is the one that has the seven-month-old baby and had had the brain tumor. Mm-hmm. He was very self-assured. He was a very confident guy. I mean, he led people in the outward bound and kayaking. and Yeah, that makes sense. He you knew. Have to he kind of like, knew what was up and he was a very confident person. He was walking through the forest like extant. <laughs> <laughs> That is an extant species. Perfect. Done. <laughs> anyway, so, but John Glennie was 
the captain, the skipper of the boat. That was his boat. He was in charge. Mm-hmm. They were ready to go. They met and two days later they left because John Glennie was, remember I said he was in a big hurry to go. Mm-hmm. Um, he was trying to get ahead of those winter southerly storm and thinking yeah. that if they could beat it, it would kind of almost like push them up, I guess. So they left on June 1st, 1989. Unfortunately, maybe I think the first night or the, the first day they, they got hit by the storm. Oh, no. The storm was throwing them around a bit. The crew was freaking out, obviously. Yeah. Because they're like, you knew this was going to happen. Because they're all pretty inexperienced. Yeah. As far as this goes. But John Glennie's been doing this. Remember, he sailed around for seven years with his brother. I mean, he's very, very good at Mm -hmm. sailing. He knows. He knows what's up. And so they were freaking out. Poor... Jim was getting super seasick, was just hurting. I feel that I would have been that person. I would have been the one like, (laughs) I just can't. I can't. I mean, I've been on ships a lot, but even just an overnight on the ship, I have to just lay down and not move. (laughs) The storm is throwing them around. He keeps saying, don't worry, it's going to pass. It's going to pass. And the whole time they wanted him to call on the radio and let other boats know their position. I'm not sure if this is why, but they did say that apparently his radio wasn't licensed. So maybe that's why he didn't want to put out a signal. But also what he says in the documentary is he feels like it's when you're out there at sea, it's like your responsibility to take care of yourself and you don't need to be calling people in to come rescue you, which I'm like, really, guy? Because the storm kept getting worse. And eventually they all talked about it and decided to pull the sail down, just pull the sail down and try to ride it out. Because the oh. sail would be pulling them even more. So the whole time during the storm, the sail is up. Yes. Oh, well, in I, the beginning. Not, uh, I don't. Nor, we're not. We're no, not, not no. experts in mm-hmm. any way whatsoever. But I would think that, yeah, if your sail is up and the storm is going on, I wouldn't you want to take that down first so that well, you I don't get pushed down? Well, I think that the storm, maybe it's just like rain and wind. Mm-hmm. And they're still like, okay, maybe we can kind of navigate out of this. But it got oh, okay. worse. And that's when they're like, okay. we got to take it down. Okay. Just take it down and let's mm-hmm. write, let's write it out. And through this whole process, they already started arguing a lot. Oh, no. Because I think the three of them were really scared and freaked out. And mm-hmm. they felt like John Glennie was like, it's all good. It's fine. Like, we don't need to call anybody. We don't need to do anything. And they're like, yes, we do. We're scared. Because the storm just kept getting stronger and kept getting worse. They did talk him into putting down this sea anchor and it had a parachute. So it would kind of give them some drag. Oh, okay. Under the water to keep them from just getting way, way off course, like blown off course and mm-hmm. just being carried out into this or around with the storm. They talked him into doing that. He did do it. But the problem is, is that it broke. He never put out a call on mm-hmm. the radio because he felt he felt like it wasn't a true emergency. So things started to calm down a little. Things seemed like, it seemed like the storm was starting to move on. Dissipate or whatever. And so early on the morning, remember they left June 1st. So in the middle of the night on June 4th, early morning hours, it seemed like things were okay and they all kind of just fell asleep, exhausted. And that's when they heard something that sounded like a freight train coming their way. At this point, they were about 140 miles off the coast of New Zealand. The massive storm that on the east coast of New Zealand's North Island 
because it's like a southern island in New Zealand on a north island. So it had created a 60 foot vertical wall of water. Is that what's called fish rain? Fish rain. I saw a video earlier this week and it's like this cyclone on the ocean and someone said that's called fish rain because I guess sometimes it sucks fish up into it. Oh, I don't know. But it was basically because of the storm, it Uh had built up basically one insane rogue waves. So if you watch the movie, there was a movie that came out in 2015 called Abandoned, and I'll I'll mention oh, it later yeah. at the end, um but you can watch it on Amazon Prime. I watched it. And the way they show it um, is that it was relatively calm at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, the the storm had passed. But where the storm was, it had built this that wave and it started coming towards them. So to them, it sounded like a rumbling of a train getting closer. It woke them up. And then before they knew it, they were just flying in the air. They The way that um, Jim put it is he's like, you didn't, it happened so fast. You didn't even know. It's just like you're sleeping and then all of a sudden you're upside down and everything is chaos. Oh my God. So it completely flipped the Rose Noel upside down. And once they were upside down, that was it. There was no flipping back over. It's kind of the blessing and the curse of a trimaran is that you're not going to sink, but you're not going to get upright right without some sort of other you know assistance but are they inside that middle hole part so they were inside sleeping the cabin part partially filled with water up to the point to where those holes were floating right the the outrigger parts Mm -hmm. so the water would kind of just go to that point and so anything above that so where those things were floating and up was where they could be dry i mean be out of the water right immediately They were like, holy crap, we got to, you know, grab everything we can. They started just like grabbing at stuff and trying to put it into that higher point on the inside of the cabin. And this was essentially the size of like a queen size bed. Oh, God. And once they got everything that they could possibly collect, which was not a lot of their emergency gear and not their life preservers, but they were able to get an emergency beacon. So they all jammed in there and just were like, holy shit, you know, now what do we do? From that day forward, they called it the cave because it was dark. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of airflow. That's all they had. Could they get out of the hull and like on top of the ship? Yes. So what they did at that point, they didn't have a working radio, but they had a locator beacon. With the beacon, they thought they would be able to pick up, be picked up within the day. Mm -hmm. So the battery of, of that beacon would last about a week, but they're like, for sure, somebody will hear us. So they all kind of, you know, were in there. They had the beacon. They That's the first thing they did was try to put it out. The problem with where they were located, which they weren't 100% sure, but John Glennie kind of knew, but he didn't say anything to the rest of the crew, was that he knew they were out of the range of ships and planes. Oh, no. And you needed to be within some range for somebody to pick up your beacon. Right. They were basically in this like marine nowhere land where nobody traversed. They call it the marine desert, which sounds weird to me. <laughs> that does, yeah. But that's what it said. What they did was they made, to stay dry, they made a plank that went over the area where the water was filled up so they could crawl over mm-hmm. they made like a hole like a hatch to get out to the top they mm. like they had luckily they had this found like a saw or something and they were able to cut a hole it's kind of hard to explain if you see the documentary or the movie it kind of shows you i will post from one of the articles how it shows it upside down and how where they were there's like a plank going over where the water is filled and then they could crawl out of this hatch they cut to get onto the top 
Okay. But to get to some of the, where the other supplies were, like in the galley and other areas, Mm -hmm. um, they would have to dive down into the water and come up into another space or try to get those things. Oh. They were all in the small space, the size of a queen bed. Imagine four grown men in the size of that space. (laughs) It was super uncomfortable and they were just getting pissed real quick. Rick was the most pissed, but he was mad at John because, you know, he felt like he lied to them. I mean, it it only was like a few days, like three days into their journey Mm -hmm. and this thing happened. He's like, you knew the storm was coming. This is your fault. You told us this kind of thing could never happen. You wouldn't let us radio when we felt like we needed to. I mean, there was just a lot of animosity and blaming, Mm -hmm. especially, of course, they're going to blame the captain and the boat owner because and he was just like, you know, guys, come on, chill. It's all good. We're going to be fine. Somebody's, you know, (laughs) like we just need to ride this out. (laughs) They try to get everything set up john glennie is always the one that ends up doing the diving he'll dive into like freezing cold water to like underneath the boat to get stuff like food from the galley you know what's weird is this whole time i was thinking the water's not that bad no because it's almost it's right. like their winter i don't it's but i also only just think, now when you said that i'm not sure about the waters in new zealand and maybe somebody from new zealand i'm sure they'll have some thoughts and they're corrections further away but from, yeah i'm yeah i'm sure yeah because they're out there in the ocean this isn't like the pacific right you know where we're at where it's pretty relatively warm it was freezing cold and every time and so in in john glennie's opinion he's like we needed to just take care of ourselves Mm-hmm. Because we didn't know how long this is going to take. And, you know, the guys kept wanting me to dive and get stuff. He's like, but every time he did that, he would come up and it would take him a long time to warm, warm up. up. Mm-hmm. And he was just freezing. It was taking its toll on him. So he dove under to get food. And they wanted him to also look for these canisters of gas because I guess they had recovered a stove. Oh, but he was like, no, I don't want to, you know, like, let's just wait. And I don't know if because they're in the water, if it's going to be good and it might blow up and then we all just blow up. And that's, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. not yeah. a good thing. Once the weather completely improved, I guess when it was sunny, like the storm was totally gone. They all went on the top. And I'm not sure. I mean, it seems like it's like a day or two, but they all went up top and tried to just be in the sun and get dry. And they all had some cuts and sores, but they were able to salvage a medical kit. So they had oh. ointment. Oh. And supplies. And so everybody was able to kind of treat their wounds. And even some of them had already had some. I mean, it happens really quickly with salt water that you can get yeah. sores and that can get infected. So the fact that mm-hmm. they had some ointment was like a saving grace. Yeah, absolutely. Because any little sore could kill you out there. And also, forty the like I said, 42-year-old Phil, he had had heart surgery prior. So he had heart medication. Oh. And he wasn't able to find it. Oh, no. Yeah, little things like that, right? Yeah. You wouldn't think of it. This whole time, like I said, John Glennie knew. He knew he kind of had a feeling, but he didn't want to tell the crew. He knew that the ocean currents would push them east to South America, to Chile. Oh, no. That was the way the currents moved. Right. Always in that time of year. And it could be 10 months before they reached land if that's where they were heading. The others were just staring at the beacon, watching the light blink. And they're like, any minute, any minute. Oh, no. It's going to happen. We're going to get saved. And they're just watching that. And John's just over there like, okay, so we might be on here for a year. Ten months. He's like mentally preparing for that. So he's in a total different frame of mind than the other guys. So about eight days after they capsized... The beacon's battery died and the spare was waterlogged and wouldn't work. So that's when the crew, that's when they understood that moment of realization when they knew like nobody's coming for us. 
at this point, they had not been rationing food or water. Because they were they in were completely like, different... we are going to be saved. Oh, no. Now it's a different game, whole different way of thinking. They're like, OK, well, now we need to start rationing our food because now we're going to be floating for 5,000 miles to South America. Can you imagine? There I say it again. Can you, you imagine? imagine? <laughs> we need to have a T-shirt that says that at this point. <laughs> That'll be, yes. Can you imagine? They were trying to like come up with all these ideas, right? John was just like, it's not, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And they were just getting more and more pissed. They wanted him to dive under the boat to see if the sails could be brought up. So what they're thinking is like, if we can try and figure out how to put the sail on the top of the boat, then maybe somehow it will, we can make it steer in a direction. But he's like, there's no way you can steer an upside down trimaran. I mean, it's just not feasibly possible. Right. He's like, I want to conserve my energy and health. I'm not going to exactly. go down there But they keep things. asking him to do all these things. And they're getting mad because he's kind of like, no, we just need to just try to deal with what we have and, you know, maintain. So finally, because with all the pressure, he did dive under. Under, but the sails were, they were totally gone. But he did check. They also wanted him to look for solar, these solar panels. Like there was a lot of things they wanted him to die for. But mm-hmm. he felt like every time he would dive, it would it hurt him right. and his chances for survival. He assured them all through this that there was plenty of fresh water because there were two tanks holding about 300 liters of water, right? So it was their water for the trip. Right. And that's how the, you know, these yachts or boats are built is to have water tanks. On June 14th, which is about 10 days after they capsized, they ran out of water up top. We're in their little cave, Mm -hmm. like literally a man cave. (laughs) It's like the worst kind. (laughs) The worst kind of man cave. (laughs) The the man cave you don't want. Right. And he went under to get the fresh water. Mm -hmm. And he was worried because they were upside down, right? And he's like, how can I open it? And it's it's just going to spill out. Right. Right. It's going to flood out. So he was already trying to figure out how he's going to get this water without losing it all and get the cap back on really fast. So he's kind of thinking of that. For some reason, because it had been upside down, it was gone. It had leaked Leaked out. out. So their fresh water was gone. He only was able to get a very little bit. He had to go up and tell them this. Another little fact is that Mm. they, they, June 14th, was John Glennie's birthday. Oh, no. He was turning 48. Crazy Geminis. Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, there's no water. It's my birthday. Yay. Imagine. It's like, yeah, which news would you tell them? Like, hey, guys, listen. Good news or bad news? What do you want? (laughs) It's my birthday today. So. And we don't have any fresh water. uh, So it's my birthday. Remember all that water I said we had? (laughs) It's gone. But it's my birthday. So (laughs) cheers to the little drops we have. So after that, with what little tiny bit of water they had, they actually started measuring it into like like shots. Everybody, they measured it to a point and they would be like, this is yours. And they would watch each other drink their portion. And then it's funny in the documentary when, especially when Jim talks about it, he's like, yeah, you know, it's like, you don't think about cabin fever and all these things. He's like, it makes people do crazy shit, fighting over a right. biscuit or you know, watching like, look at him drink his water. And then the person drinking is like, this is so amazing, you know, and they're like drinking it. (laughs) And like, just it was like a thing. But they had to make some rules for these things like this. So one of them was about rationing food. And it was like a majority rule saying like, should we have another ration of water today? I think I think we deserve it. And then somebody else is like, no, we need to save it. And it had to be like, everybody had to agree if they were going to have like a second serving or something. Uh, Another thing is they talked about all of them kind of said this, but how thirsty they were. I would definitely be a like really slow sipper on my 
<laughs> Annoyingly slow. Annoyingly slow. I really feel like we would be terrible if you and I got stuck Oh my in God. We, we might murder each other. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, I say I would want to be a sipper. I would want to be a sipper, but I would definitely be a chugger. I'm like, you're not a sipper. Yeah, I can't sip things. Although I'm very proud of your sipping abilities on your drink today. Just saying. <sighs> you know, I didn't just pound it. Yeah. No, <sighs> I, I feel like I would want to sip it too, just to get every last drop to like quench your thirst as much as possible but you know what that's your chance for your rations i feel you know do whatever the hell you want this is true you want to chug it you want to sip it you want to like lick it like a cat (laughs) (laughs) lap it up oh that was their rule majority rules they had very little water and by late june the rose noel was late it was late at the destination and that's when the families were like, what, what, where are they? So they called search and rescue to help them or the government to help look for them. So there was a two-day search mm-hmm. that the planes went in the area where they would have been, you know, coming from their path to Tonga mm-hmm. and found nothing. And they were like, well, we didn't find them. And that was it. Done. So Rick's wife, the one with the baby, she said she felt it early on that something was wrong. Like she had an intuition. She's like, I just had this feeling. And when they didn't show, she's like, I I wasn't shocked. She's like, I knew something had gone wrong. And she was so like, she's like, when they came back and they're like, we're done searching and they had nothing. It was it was really heartbreaking. And at that point, people started talking to her like, you just need to let go and, you know, understand. And so they kind of thought one of two things happened. Either they exploded somewhere, like maybe there was (laughs) an explosion on the boat and it just went into a million pieces. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, they just sunk somewhere Mm -hmm. and they all drowned. They also, in that documentary, they interviewed John Glennie's sister. And it's funny because she's much more like him that he was like we're gonna be fine everything's gonna be fine because the whole time he really did feel like regardless of what happens we're gonna be fine so she had that feeling too she's like i knew this wasn't oh i mean everything was not good that they were missing she's like but i had a feeling they were okay and they would be back this reminds me of mauro his wife being like listen it's fine he's built for this yeah and i think because John Glennie's sister had seen her, you know, her brothers go travel around and she knew that he was very experienced and whatever happened, he would be okay. But other people were like, they're dead. It's been, you know, you just need to move on. (laughs) I I take it back. I don't think we would kill each other because we've been in situations where it just things get progressively worse and weirder. Yeah. I think we would be like him. I think we'd be like, it's okay. Okay. What's our situation today? No, I agree. And it, yeah. and I think we would we would still somehow find some humor in it all. Definitely. As we die and <laughs> starve to death. <laughs> like, this is hilarious. Remember that time? <laughs> At this point, you know, that's what's happening with other people. They, everybody knows they're missing. That's happening. But the crew, they were just like damn thirsty. They're rationing. They hate it. They're all like pissed. They were like, okay, here's what we're going to do. If it starts raining, we ha- we have a plan, right? Yeah. They had all these, they kind of had a, a, they had talked that out. If it rains, they had these pots, they had a system, who was going to go up top, who was going to pass water down, they were going to save it in these containers. They had everything ready mm-hmm. and it rained. It started raining. They were started collecting the rainwater. They came up with like so much water that they were just like guzzling water at a point. Oh, no. Well, no, but they had but filled like, everything, okay. you know, so at that right, point, right. they're just like, ah, so good. <laughs> and so, and it really boosted their morale. Oh, that's good. And then once they had that, then they went up top and built like this elaborate rainwater catchment oh. on top that even had like a tube that came down and like funneled water. They built like this wooden um, gutter, mm-hmm. like or I think on both sides, like these gutters that made water come down. So they got really good at it. That first month, Phil had 
gotten pretty depressed. Right. He was just like, F my life. I'm sure it just sucked. But he was, mm-hmm. he to him, he was like, I really missed my family. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, you know, he has four kids and his wife. And he's just really sick. You know, he's just kind of heartbroken, missing them. And he didn't do much. He kind of just laid around and... Wasn't doing too well. And the other guys were all like, it makes me think of like a cartoon or like some crazy movie where it was like, there was bad intentions. Like these other guys were like, what if there's only three of us? Oh no. You know, and he was like the dead weight. You know, like he wasn't doing anything. He was just like laying there and not being helpful. And he was depressed. And they kept kind of thinking like, what if we just knock him off the boat? Yeah. Are and they so, going to eat him? No. There was no talk just, of that, okay. but you never know, you know? Phil was like, I, he's like, I don't know if that's what they were thinking, but at one point he did fall off the boat when he was up top. But the way the current was and where he fell, the boat came to him, so he got out. But he's like, that could have easily that's happened. Lucky. He's like, that could have worked out for them, but it didn't. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, he's kind of having that issue. Rick and Jim are kind of getting sick of him. They all don't like John Glennie because John just in his own world. And they were all like, there was like some mutiny happening. So I think for all of them, it was not really, they're not cohesive at all. On all of their minds is not knowing what the hell is going to happen. They don't know. Like, how long are we going to be here? What What is the situation? It's that not knowing that'll just mm-hmm. like gnaw at you over time. and made them, it just made the situation worse. So about six weeks in, John Glennie is up top and he's just hanging out, being a dude. And he sees a ship like in the far off distance. Oh, shit. And it's pretty far away. And they're all like, the ship, like we got to do something and like try to get their attention. And he's like, nope, they'll never see us. Let's not do anything. And they're like, but but we should do something. And I don't know exactly what they could have done. And maybe he was right. But to him, he was like, that's let's not waste our energy on that. Right. And our resources. There's no way they're going to see us. They're Mm -hmm. too far away. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he was right. But that made them even more pissed because they felt like he wasn't making any effort to try to improve the situation or get help. Also, are they not remembering that he has decades of experience? I mean, but look at what a disaster they're in. And they think it's his fault. Right. They're like, you knew a storm was coming and you brought us out here. And now look. Yeah, I kind of see where maybe he should have shared more information about what he was thinking. Yes. To get them to be not so mutinous. (laughs) <laughs> yes just i mean haters. i just yeah. think it was just the personalities were so different like he john glennie had this personality that's like whatever happens happens and we, right. we just need to roll with it and let things happen and you know try to take care of ourselves and we'll all be okay it seems like he's keeping some information about what he's thinking like the whole thing where they think they're going to get rescued in that first week and he's like we're going to be on this boat for 10 months like he's keeping it real close right. to the vest and maybe he should have said hey guys this is the actual situation we're in and yes. then i see both sides like he should have been mm-hmm. more honest with them but at sure. the same time he wanted them to to stay calm because they were panicking losing it yeah Yeah, they were kind of losing it so i think he's doing that and at the same time that's just i think they just all felt like he was way too chill about things i kind of appreciate that kind of personality oh yeah because i feel like you need that in an emergency situation yes but they felt like it wasn't proactive enough you know, I can see both sides. Anyway, so on July 15th, they were, it was actually Phil. He's hanging out, staring at the water from the cave inside, like looking at that case. <laughs> they kind of have like a plank over the water um, where it's, you know, upside down and there's like, they can see in there and he saw a fish. 
And oh. nobody believed him at first. And they're like, nah, you didn't see. That's just like, there's no, not, there's never going to be fish out here. Like, like ocean, we're way out. Yeah. Ocean mirage. Yeah. That's a mirage. <laughs> and so they were like, you know, they're like, there won't be fish out here. There's no way. And so he's like, no, no, I swear I saw fish. And then later they all saw it and they're like, holy shit. So they, I, I guess they had a net or they fashioned a net and they caught it. Oh my God. And it was like a huge kingfish. And they said they got four meals out of it and it was delicious. And they were like so happy. They realized that it happened because barnacles were starting to grow on the hull. And it was attracting, it was already starting to grow like score stuff and stuff was floating and sticking to it, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's it called? Organic sea debris, like kelp and those things mm-hmm. that float around was kind of getting caught underneath what well, was now the before the top of the boat, now, now the, the underneath. Yeah. yeah. So there were barnacles and things sticking to it and it was attracting fish. So they actually um, were catching fish. So they caught that fish first and they were able to catch more fish. And also they collected the kelp and they would eat it. They still had season because remember he would dive under and bring stuff from the galley and they had weeks worth of supplies. Yeah. So as they rationed it, he was able to like, you know, season it and make it taste good. And Oh, wow. Apparently, John Glennie was a real good cook and he filleted the fish and really well and they dried what they couldn't use. Jim had said that they cut the head and the guts and put it in a separate container mm-hmm. and that the guys were like, ew, we're not going to, are we going to eat that? And he's like, hell yeah. I mean, we, we yeah. are going to eat this. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you are in a survival situation. Like there's no gross here. They even caught an albatross. What? Which are huge. And they ate it. I'm yeah. kind of sad about that, but I get it. Well, I'm going to talk about it because now it's nature time, Megan. Nature time. We're going to take a break for some nature time. Let's talk about kingfish. Kingfish are, are green on top and white underside. About 75% of the kingfish are harvested in New Zealand by recreational fishers. Mm-hmm. They're a large predatory fish. They grow over 1.5 meters in length. So they're big. That's big. They usually occur in schools which is helpful when you want to eat a lot of them. And ranging from like a couple to over 100. And they're most commonly found in the semi-pelagic depths, about 200 meters, more abundant in the northern half of the North Island, but also occur, I guess, in other areas than they say. And I don't know the areas very well, but I'm sure people in New Zealand know about it. They're also found in open coastal waters, sometimes near areas where sandy bottoms are shallow enclosed bays, which may be why they were attracted to... That boat, yeah. It was like a little floating reef, right? They created like a little ecosystem. A little microhabitat. Yes, a microhabitat, like under boat. So cool. That was the fish they were catching. It's pretty common there. Mm -hmm. Big, delicious fish. Lots of protein. So much protein. Very important. Yes. When you were surviving. And they had their rainwater catchment. They're doing pretty good. So let's talk about the albatross. It's likely that they caught the northern royal albatross because those are endemic to New Zealand. Their conservation status is, in New Zealand, it's naturally uncommon, which falls under an at-risk category. But with the IUCN, they're listed as endangered. Oh, wow. They're one of the largest birds in the world. I'm going to talk a lot about albatross because they're so freaking cool. But there are two species of royal albatross, the southern and the northern. And they only realized that distinction in the, I think, 1998. Mm. So genetically, they saw that they were slightly different. At sea, it can be distinguished from the northern by its white upper wings with black edges or tips. So I guess if you're in New Zealand and you're really doing some bird watching, you can that's how you can tell the difference. The royal albatross are some of the longest lived birds. And we know that albatross live a long time. Mm-hmm. They typically live in their 40s. They have very slow reproduction rates. 
And that is something that affects them in, you know, by getting them into that uh, risk status. There's also changes in their habit and climate change, of course, mm-hmm. and then some fishing practices. And that could be fishing nets because they dive down and get food. Just for New Zealand, there was a storm on the Chatham Islands in 1985 that completely destroyed the albatross's nesting habitat. Oh. So re- it reduced their nesting rates as low as 3% for some years. The good thing is, is that the population has finally been recovering from that, like mm-hmm. over time. But that was a long time ago. Imagine 1985. I'll give you some fun facts, but just real quick. The ones for specific to New Zealand, the Royal Albatross range from the Southern Ocean are most commonly seen in New Zealand coastal waters during the winter which is when this was oh, okay so that makes sense that they would see it yeah right they'll travel vast distances from breeding grounds to feed as much as 190,000 kilometers or that's 118,000 miles for oh, all of us wow fun facts albatross has the largest wingspan of any living bird I remember that. Yes, up to 12 feet. A wandering albatross, they can soar 500 miles in a day and maintain speeds of 80 miles per hour for eight hours. Bro. That's crazy. And they never flap their wings. Because they're so giant. They're so giant. They, they just, just kind of soar. soar. I think what, so they said that it's fascinated engineers, of course. Yeah. They tried to mimic this flying abilities in like aircrafts. Good luck. <laughs> Can't be done. I have always loved Albatross ever since that, not the great mouse detective. What's the one where the, there's like little mice ride on no, a giant it is. Albatross? I think it Was is. it the great mouse detective? It's one of those movies that Disney yes. put out where the, where the art. I loved those movies. Yeah. When and, the art wasn't so great. The art was kind of random. No. It It was like that little girl who was an orphan and they were going to go save her. The Rescuers. The Rescuers. That's what it was. Yeah. The Rescuers. Yeah. I think, was that an albatross? I'm pretty sure he was an albatross that they rode on. Yeah. And it was like from the top of a building in New York and it was snowing. Was that the girl that was like held on a ship and there was like alligators yes. all around? And yes. like the, the woman who was like taking care of her was like always in like a weird negative. She was negligee. like a floozy. Yeah. And she had like a she had like a crazy long she, cigarette holder. She was like the lady from like Orphan Annie. Yes. Like the Miss What's-Her-Face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another fact is they can go years without touching land. Isn't that crazy? I didn't know that. That is blowing my mind right now. I can't even. So once they fledge, they can spend a year or more at sea without ever touching land, flying the whole time. But do they land on the water and like floaty float? Well, so I guess touching down on the water puts them at risk. So they only go down briefly just to feed. Okay, so it's why it's widely believed that they must sleep while they're flying. What? And so they just don't know, right? Because there's so much scientists don't know because they're up in the air and it's hard. They've documented a lot from frigate birds and that's kind of what they collect, you know. Why has no one put a GoPro (laughs) on an albatross yet? What is going on? Well, this they makes do want to be a birder. That's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, they do track them. And, and when we get later, I'll kind of give some mm-hmm. information where you can watch a live cam in New Zealand of albatross and they're breeding it. and they're on their breeding area. And also mm-hmm. you can see them like flying around. Also, they can raise, they can live and raise chicks into their 60s. Dude. All albatross are long lived birds and they can live for decades. Some well beyond their 50th birthday, and we know this because of Wisdom. Wisdom is at the uh, Midway Atoll Mm -hmm. Wildlife Refuge, and she's a Laysan albatross. That's cool. They think she hatched somewhere around 1951 or earlier, 
She was first banded in 1956, so they've been tracking her movements at Midway Atoll since 1956. So Wisdom has to be, now she's at least 70. She continues to return to Midway, and she's raised 30 to 36 chicks. She was most recently, and I did see this in the news, because working with the wildlife refuge system, I, you know, we it's not too far from us, Midway. Yeah. So she most recently had a chick in 2021. There was, it hatched in February. And you can check this out on the Twitter page for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Pacific Region or on their website. That's so cool. And I will post a picture of her. I want to know what it was like for her when she had her first chick versus now her like 30 whatever. She's like, listen up. This is how it's going to go. She's got like the cigarettes. (laughs) She's like, I'm tired. I'm so tired. By that point, they just she just stops naming them. <laughs> she just, just calls like, them you. Her first chick, she's using like organic everything, <laughs> like cloth diapers. <laughs> and now, now she's like just shit in this hole. Like I don't even <laughs> want to deal with you. <laughs> she's like, what? You want me to go fly like hundreds of miles to bring you food? God, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> she's just sleeping in the air. I mean. <laughs> She's 70. Can you imagine? So good. I love it. So there was actually one bird located at, and I hope I'm saying this right, New Zealanders out there, Te Oroa. It's like the kind of a national park, and it's where a lot of the albatross are nesting. And they call this one that they call Grandma. She raised her last chick at the age of 62. Jeez. Then she's like, I'm out. (laughs) So here's another one that actually makes me sad, more sad about the one that they ate, mm-hmm. which is that they mate for life. Oh. So if that was a full-grown breeding adult, mating adult, then somebody lost their partner. They're known for forming long-lasting bonds with one partner, and it's rarely broken. It's often said that they have the lowest divorce rate of any bird. The mated pairs typically don't split up until one of the birds dies. The chick fledges after 165 days. So they actually only spend their time together during that 165 days because then they split up the rest of the year and they only reunite when it's time to breed again. I just it's crazy like how they they find each other. Right. And like maybe they're just cruising around in the sky like soaring and they'll pass each other and they're like, I see you. You see me. I see you. See you later. I'll see you next month. Yes. We're doing the breeding we're thing. At, well, okay, let's match up our calendars. We're going to get busy. Got to raise our kids. And then we're going to peace out for a while. I like it. Low That's- divorce rate right there. There you go, people. That's how you do it. They're actually considered socially monogamous, which means they can bond. They bond with a single partner, but sometimes breed outside that relationship. Oh, what? So Scandal. they're like polyamorous? Is that oh. what we're in? That's interesting. They also court each other. This is the other fun fact. I, if you ever follow any of this, you've seen it with these elaborate mating dances. So that's how they choose partners. There has to be like this crazy funky dance happening and that's how they know who the best are saturday night fever (laughs) yeah this is where that floofy mullet could come in over time that dance becomes unique to like each pair like they have a very particular move they like to do together also this is something that researchers didn't know and i guess it's hard to research these guys but they actually smell can smell food in the water from 12 miles away what So we all know that sight is important, Mm -hmm. of course, but they thought it was usually from sight that they were catching their prey, but it's actually the smell. 
contributes to as many as half of their in-flight food discoveries. I feel like polar bears aren't as exciting anymore now that we know about albatross 12 miles away being able to smell. Albatross. Right? It's like before we were like, oh, polar bear can smell seals, you know, certain. Whatever. Polar bears are freaking amazing. They are. And they're considered marine mammals, which I never knew. And they're an extant species. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Perfect. This is really interesting. They form female-female pairs. Which is just amazing. So the female Laysan albatross can sometimes pair with other females. And they've especially Mm. seen this on the Hawaiian islands of Oahu, where you once lived. There's a breeding colony and it's 31% female-female mated pairs. They say that they do this. They basically help each other raise chicks because the male maybe pieces out or whatever happens and they they help each other. They work, you know, as a pair because usually it's the male and the female. Yeah. They have fewer chicks in this situation, but in the end, it's better than not having any at all. It's like a single mom's network. Yes. So I should have mentioned this earlier. There's 22 albatross species recognized by the IUCN, which is, I don't know, if we, we've mentioned this in other episodes, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, mm-hmm. they're at risk for extinction. 15 are threatened with extinction. Eight are listed as endangered or critically endangered. And many albatross are dying at, at sea from being ensnared by fishing lines and nets. They're also dying as eggs and chicks in breeding grounds because of invasive predators like cats. <laughs> cats and rats. Damn it, cats. So ocean plastics, because they'll get it in the water or the chicks will be fed it by their parents unwittingly. For sailors or Mm -hmm. mariners, there's a lot of beliefs around the albatross. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching the documentary, this is what kind of made me think of it is like, yeah, we ate an albatross. We know that that's not like that's really bad luck. But we did it anyway because we were starving. Right. Here's some beliefs about like that go way back. So because the albatross command the wind and sailors believe that albatross would bring needed winds, like they think they're Mm -hmm. good luck. And also they believe that the albatross can carry the souls of dead mariners. So when you see one flying overhead, it's considered good luck. So they think that like, this is good luck. It's the souls of our friends who have died at sea and they're coming to protect us from any harm. In a similar vein, they could, it could be a bad omen and it could say like, you're going to die because here's these <laughs> dead souls flying over. Mm-hmm. But the popular belief is to kill one would bring bad luck to the crew in the ship because essentially you're killing your friend's souls. Oh my God. There's a little fun fact for you. Another one is that for mariners, cats were considered good luck. Especially polydactyl cats. Hey. I know, right? I might have mentioned that in the cat episode. I think you might have, yeah. yeah. But yeah, because they basically, in, you know, in reality, they love taking cats on boats because they killed all the rats and... Ratters. Yeah, and mice. And that saved them from disease or losing food and all that stuff. Another thing is rats and mice could chew through ropes. Oh, yeah. And like take down their sails or cause it to be weak in a mm-hmm. storm. So there you go. Nature moments. I like it. Back to the story. So Phil Hoffman... Mm-hmm. Our 42-year-old dad of four. Yes. He was the one who actually became really good at catching the fish. And this kind of helped him come out of his depression. Mm-hmm. When they, when I was watching the documentary, Jim was like, you know, we all were like, he's dead weight. But once he started coming back, he's like, in the end, I look back and he was the strongest of us all. He just needed to hit a low point. It's a good thing they didn't like throw him overboard or eat him. (laughs) (laughs) When it started getting colder, because remember, they're moving into their winter Mm -hmm. because they're down under. (laughs) (laughs) July, (laughs) July, August. 
So as it started getting colder, this really pushed John Glennie to dive to look for those gas bottles because it was getting cold now at this point. So they had the stove. He dove under. He found them and they worked. And they were like, why didn't we do this a long time ago? Because they had heat, warmth, Mm -hmm. and they were able to like actually cook their food. And it was like a whole nother world opened up. Oh, yeah. They've been eating the fish raw then? Yeah. And the albatross, I assume. Oh. Yeah. Well, you got to do what you got to do. This is true. Yeah. Everything was actually kind of going well. The only problem at this point was that Rick had only poo-pooed twice in three months. (laughs) Oh, no, Rick. Oh, poor Rick. And it was making him super sick. Like he was starting to like slur his words. Like he was like really getting messed up. James or Jim, his good friend, fashioned a homemade enema like with some cooking oil. And was like, look, we got to do this. We got to, we got to do. I'm looking at Megan right now. I'm like, please don't ever make me give you a homemade enema. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like holding it and Rick's laying there. And he's like, I love you, bro. I love you too. And then right before, I don't know if like it started to go in or whatever. And then Rick's like, I think I can go. (laughs) He ran up top and pooed like he's never pooed before in his life. I think it was the fear. (laughs) It was the fear of having your friend give you an enema. A homemade homemade Crisco enema. Oh, man. Yeah, I would. It just drew the poop. The fear. It was fear driven poo. That's hardcore. What a friend. Let me just tell you, I would do it for you. Would you? I would. I would. I don't know if, if I would do it for you. <laughs> if you were on the brink of death. Oh, I'd, oh, give, okay. I'd, I'd yeah. give you that Crisco enema. I would, I mean, I would start with some gentle circles. <laughs> rub rub some ge- <laughs> on your tummy. <laughs> An abdominal massage. That's what I would start with. Like, okay, let's, let's try this first. You know, oh, let me boy. just give well, you. Well, I appreciate that. Like, I do think I that would... oh, you could get some oil and actually do yeah. some massage first to try to work it down. It doesn't, yeah, they yeah. didn't talk about it if they tried that first. Sure. I'm hoping they did before they went straight to <laughs> he's the, just like, like, to the pooper. Like, well, one day he's like, you guys, I don't, I've been feeling kind of bad. By the way, I haven't pooped in like two months. Okay, we got to give you an enema. Like, I think <laughs> I would be like, what are all the possibilities? It's like instantly they start building the enema without, right? Like, without all the possibilities. <laughs> Let me just tell a real quick side story. <laughs> It's real fun. I'm when, sure it is. When my son was very young, he was like a baby. Right. And he didn't poop for, you know, when you're a first time parent. Oh, God. You, it's if they don't are not on that regular poop schedule, you're like, oh, I have my a story God. Too. Totally. Yes. Yeah. And my son hadn't pooped in like two days, which is not normal. For no, it's not good for babies. Yeah. yeah. And I had called the nurse's station. I was like, he hasn't pooped. Mm. What am I supposed to do? And they were like, just give him... He was old enough to have water at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, so he was still nursing, but like, he could have water. Mm-hmm. Like, just give him a bottle of warm water. And I was like, sweet. So I gave him You're the like, bottle. I have that. I've checked. <laughs> I have it done. So I gave him a bottle of warm water. And then my mom and I went to the store. And I was while you're on the phone, mom. you're holding a homemade enema. <laughs> <laughs> I just have the Crisco. I'm like, I'm going like, to give him some Crisco. Um, but my brother was staying with us at the time. Like, mm-hmm. we're all in the house. And I, I gave you know my son to my brother and i was like hey here hold on to him we got to run to the store we'll be gone maybe 15 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and we left and i was kind of laughing to myself in the car like it would be so funny my son pooed while we were gone because my brother wasn't into the poo stuff no yeah we get to the store and we get a phone call from my brother and he's like you he's like almost yelling on the phone you have to come home now 
And I'm like, what happened? Oh my God. And he's like, he pooped everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. There's poo like on my leg. It's everywhere. It's, That's it's amazing. Like, so I guess he like, you know, exploded. <laughs> <laughs> the warm water. My brother was like holding my son on his knee. And it just. And it just, yeah, it just explosion. That sounds was, like the airplane story when I yeah. was bringing my oh, yes. older daughter who was like two. Oh, God. And it, she decided on the plane from Guam to Hawaii to have like a full on the worst diarrhea of her life. Oh, I can't and it just you spilled out the back of her diaper, <laughs> yeah. landed on the floor while I'm trying to get her to the bathroom. <laughs> the looks on the people's faces. Horror. And I was like in full on just like, no. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> why is this happening? I was that lady. Yeah. And I, when we got to you, I was like, dang it. <laughs> we need to shower <laughs> anyway that's great yeah that's my great. younger daughter got constipated once my husband just like she was trying to push it out and he kind of like reached up in reached there. in there just a little <laughs> and it fell out on my leg <laughs> but it was like a hard yeah i was just like it's on my leg because <laughs> <laughs> Because that happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it gets stuck. Oh man, so if you're babies. not, you know what? If you're not into poop, don't have a kid. I'm telling you. Yeah, no, just, don't. There's a lot of it. There's a lot. Of, you have to document it too. I feel like there's a documentation. <laughs> but definitely, uh, if it's your adult friend, you got to help them out. Look. So as Megan suggests, start with an abdominal massage. Some warm before water. Before you just start pu- yeah. making an enema. Cigarettes. Get a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> some coffee some coffee oh my god they just hadn't had coffee that's what it was he had had plenty of warm water yeah poor rick Mm -hmm. almost got the enema and he when you said i would just start a circular motion i thought you were talking about (laughs) by the way that's why i kind of lost it i thought you were talking about like you were gonna like ease it in like (laughs) make it more comfortable gonna be hard to focus the rest of the story but let's we got this so rick was okay rick pooed good job rick simon around the the same time Mm -hmm. john glennie got sick he got some food poisoning and he was having probably the opposite problem he was probably doing the double you know the poo and vomit simultaneous thing um (laughs) over the side of the boat so everybody was kind of worried about him because it was Mm -hmm. that was taking its toll on him and they were starting to get worried about him Luckily for them, they were at day 116 and they saw land. So I think John was up top, probably having massive watery (laughs) diarrhea. And he was like, what is that? So he saw it, but he had no idea where they were. So what had happened is that this particular year, Mm -hmm. there was this freak wind pattern of southerlies and north easterlies winds that was hard to say that actually blew the boat in kind of like this weird roundabout zigzaggy way Mm -hmm. just around new zealand instead of pushing them east which they should have gone right to south america they were still in new zealand just kind of out of everybody's range way off to the east is that why they had the kingfish yes they were still in New Zealand. I was because when you were telling about the kingfish, I was like, "But aren't they like halfway to oh, yeah. South America yeah. at this yeah, point?" Yeah, yeah. Because like, you were saying coastal waters and all that. Like they're. We'll just pretend like I was hinting at it. I love it. Yeah. As they were seeing land, that's when it dawned on John. Like, wait a second, this mm-hmm. looks familiar. We're freaking still. In, and then that's when he realized. Oh my god. We're still in New Zealand. So the land they were seeing was actually this uh, this island called the Great Barrier Island, and it's right off the coast of Auckland. So on September thirtieth, <laughs> September thirtieth. So we got an all of June, all of July, all of August, all of September. So on September thirtieth, I got really close. 
to and it was a it's like not a nice like you're just like floating up to this white sandy beach. It's like the kind of coastline where it's just like rocks and waves like pounding. So they're like, yay land. They're like, oh, we're going to die <laughs> trying to get up there. So the waves were kind of in the current pushed them up towards the coastline. Somehow like, you know, it's like these big waves coming up and they were able to kind of ride the wave up while they were still on the Rose Noel. And as Phil put it, he's like, I just stepped out onto land without even my getting wet. It like literally pushed them up onto the rocks. That's crazy. And they stepped off. But the Rose Noel broke up into a million pieces on the shoreline. And if you look at a picture of it, I can't, I think there is a picture of it uh, when it's broken up and they're looking at it. Yeah, it was like really in pieces. And it kind of, you know, it just makes me sad. There's a picture of John Glennie kind of going through the pieces and sitting there and looking at it and you feel sorry for him. Yeah, I mean, he spent 20 years of his life. That was his that was his baby. That was yeah. his dream that he talked about. Like, I don't go to pubs because I want to live my dreams. And that was his dream. And there it was. Broken you know. into a million pieces. Yeah. Oh. It's sad. You know, and this crew that had, you know, kind of just been pissed at him this whole time. As they started walking on the land, they looked way up at the top and they saw a house it's like on these islands they have it's an it's a new zealand thing or i don't know maybe an australian thing too but it's called like b-a-c-h but it's they say betch okay not like like what's that betch (laughs) (laughs) no it's like a betch i don't know that's what they i was that's how they said it so they saw this it's like a summer home cabin thing situation get away yeah they saw it kind of way up on the hill they were super weak and imagine they hadn't walked in four months like really oh yeah they've been like like sea legs they got bad sea legs so they're super weak they're trying to get up there they're kind of getting lost and turned around they're just like shit you know like this is crazy one of them noticed like i think i see a path or a trail and so they followed it up into this house they get to this house knock on the door nobody's home because it's like uh winter time yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, it's winter time and so they just crawled in a window i'm like they definitely broke in oh they broke in they definitely got in there and they were like dude's gone wild (laughs) so they just like they ate like they were just like eating like crazy like getting into everything they're just like so happy Mm -hmm. they showered luckily it was like a house for a guy so they had all these clothes they changed clothes they shaved they slept away from each other and separate rooms right you know like i've slept really well for like a whole night i imagine that they were still feeling like funky funky like drifting because i remember just being when i was on the boat for a couple of weeks or on a ship and when i got off it was like even though i slept on land i Mm -hmm. still felt myself waving you know rocking they just were like happy they had this nice like they made like a feast dinner they had wine candles they were just like yay we're alive we made it and then that's the last dinner they would ever have together. And I guess, you know, memorable. So the next day, they heard a phone ringing from another house. And they're like, oh, shoot, there's a phone. Because there wasn't a phone in that house. Okay, I was going to ask. So they went to this other house, and they were able to get on the phone and call the police. They actually spoke to Constable Shane Goodenet. Got a net. He was like, and they were like, hey, we're from the Rose Noel. He's like, no, you're not. (laughs) Those guys are dead. He's like, no, 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 really. We are. He's like, okay, well, let me come out. So he went out and he was, they interviewed him on that documentary. He's like, seriously. He's like, I did not think it was those guys. And when he saw them, he's like, they looked okay. But they had all showered and shaved and changed. Right. He's like, but they threw these clothes up onto the back of the truck. And he's like, man, man, it smelled real bad. He's like, I don't think they understood how bad that smelled. He's like, that's when he knew. Like, he was like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That No one has those kind of clothes that mm-hmm. I've ever met. 
So after that, they were brought in. Um, they were split up because John Glennie went with somebody he knew and the other guys were kind of, and the media was just like crazy on them. Yeah. yeah. They just went nuts. So imagine they just got off this, sh- this terrible being stranded at sea and they were just like hounded by the media. And so, and they were just completely dazed. You know, their bodies are just drained and actually they're suffering from PTSD. Oh, for sure. And nobody at that time really talked about it or understood it. But mm-hmm. now, you know, talking to them later, they're like, oh, yeah, we totally had that. It was a, people were just in their faces like, no, how, how does it feel to be back? And how, you know, like, you almost died. Were you were you <clears throat> scared? Was it hard? And they're mm-hmm. just like, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just nuts. If you look at their interviews, they're just kind of like, really, people? The government of New Zealand ordered an official inquiry, of course. They didn't believe them. They thought it was a hoax because they looked okay. Other than right. being a little skinny, yeah, they looked okay. And they thought, these guys are running drugs. <laughs> I read this article in, from 1989. It's an October 1989 LA Times article. One of the world's greatest survival stories or one of its greatest hoaxes. So despite that they had all lost like 40 pounds plus, they thought these people came out in pretty good shape. There was this guy, Captain Melvin uh, Bowen. He conducted the initial investigation. He's like, if they've been drifting in the Pacific for four months, why didn't they float towards Chile? That's where they, to South America. That's where it was, they were supposed to go. And he also thought that, because all their stories, because remember they didn't like get along so well. Yeah. So they seemed kind of vague and confused and unsure of the details. But I think they were just like exhausted. Yeah. The customs people were like, I think they're doing drugs. They just didn't believe them. They thought, well, the timeline is right. It would take about four months to get to South America, collect the drugs, and then drop them back maybe at, in, you know, at that island. Maybe that's what happened. Did they not see the shipwreck? So later, they're like, we want to go down and see. And, and, oh, and they thought, well, they brought the drugs back, but they had some sort of problem getting back to the island. And that's why they hit the rocks and the Rose Noel like broke up. Mm. So they're saying like, you guys did this trip and you guys crash landed basically back on the Great Barrier Island. Mm-hmm. So they went back to the wreckage and really investigated, you know, all the pieces. They f- saw all the barnacles and they kind of looked at everything and they're like, oh, Oh, yeah. So after that, they're like, okay, I believe you guys. <laughs> I don't know if they didn't see the clothes, <laughs> right? <laughs> there were still like people who were really skeptical. I feel like this is after a lot of things happen. People just like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. So there were other like yachts people that thought, you know, shouldn't they be more sick, like have sores and scurvy? Scur- I was going like to <laughs> ask about scurvy. Yeah, but they had medicine. You know, a lot of their supplies were still there. So I guess, you know, it just really baffled people. And then they also had to go and really look at the currents that year and the wind patterns. And then Mm -hmm. once they really looked at it, they were able to kind of map out how they ended up. They kind of were able to answer all the questions. And oh, one person was like, well, he wants to tell this story so he can sell it and get a book deal. Mm -hmm. But they're like, even if he was selling this book deal, it's not enough to make up for what he put into that the rose noel yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't even cover it phil was just like you know anybody who thinks it's a hoax you're a bloody idiot (laughs) (laughs) someone asked if there was any conclusive evidence and he said yeah the fact that i know we did it and three other people did it hello like all four of us we were there it happened like we're not making this up so finally the they decided they were telling the truth the inquiry was closed and it was a done deal they just have a picture of the four of them holding the homemade enema gentle circles (laughs) after that they all moved on with their lives 
Phil lost touch. They they really didn't. The only two that stayed in touch were the original two friends, Jim and Rick. So Phil lost touch with the other three men. He and his wife, they reunited. They had another mm-hmm. baby. Oh, that was number five. Um, he actually got a trimaran after this. And they moved to another part of the island and they lived aboard it. Dill sailed around. He was still into it. That's Unfortunately, cool. Phil died in 2015 of mm. heart complications. So that came back later. But he seemed like a really cool guy. He's yeah. in the documentary. Sadly, as well, is eight months after the rescue, Rick's brain tumor came back. Oh, and no. this time he didn't beat it. He passed away. Jim stayed and helped take care of him with the wife and tried to nurse him in those final months. After that, he went back to the States. Probably went back to the States and was like, ugh. <laughs> Never getting on a boat again. And But after that, he went back to New Zealand. He missed it. Yeah. You know, I don't well, blame him. It's, it seems like an amazing place. I've seen The Hobbit. That place looks awesome. It's all you need to know. And he went back to New Zealand, qualified as a nurse. Obviously, he's willing to give an enema. That's nurse material right <laughs> there. Right? He's, like, seriously. He's like, uh, they ask him, when did you decide to become a nurse? <laughs> And he's like, listen. I can tell you exactly. I can tell you the day exactly. <laughs> he worked at Nelson Hospital and he ended up marrying a New Zealander. Oh, nice. He actually also published a book. This is so interesting. Called Capsized. Jim Nalpeka's epic 119-day survival voyage aboard the Rose Noel. It's a paperback from 1992 written by Stephen Callahan. Wait a minute. Yes. That's crazy. That's Steve Callahan, who is best known for completing the Atlantic crossing after losing his boat mid-ocean in 1982. Yeah. Crazy. A story for another episode. It is. But there's so many amazing lost at sea stories so we'll probably do them we'll spread it out yeah over time. just one after the other perfect so john glennie actually also had a book in 1990 called the spirit of rose noel 119 days adrift a survival story and that was his book that came out in 1990 later so after this all happened john glennie actually moved to the u.s and he started traveling in a camper van and this is during the documentary he said that he has no dreams to go back to the sea and that all died with the rose noel that's so sad it's so sad he's like i'll just be in my ear i'll be on land he was talking about it like it's really freeing to just be on the road and you don't worry about you know being out there in weather and you're stranded kind of you know i think it as much as he kind of handled the ordeal i think pretty Mm -hmm. well yeah like it definitely caused some trauma there were some things yeah although i'm just i don't want to correct him or anything but you can be on the road and stranded under massive amounts snow. of snow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or rock falls or lots of things lots so of things. yeah but still but still different. he probably feels like it's safer he feels safer mm-hmm. but he's still getting to travel and see things mm-hmm. and you know if he's from New Zealand and lived in Australia, but going to the U.S. is, I mean, it's beautiful to travel around the U.S. It's true. You see a little bit of everything there. Yeah. Everything. In 2011, John Glennie published a book entitled Playboys of the South Pacific. What? Oh, yeah. Is it just like, is it just like a yearbook of like, <laughs> like a hot old guys? Like, it's just like go-go boots. Like, yeah. This is what he wrote about the book. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you what he said. It's dedicated to the spirit of adventure that dwells in many young people as we were when we built our trimaran. It was written for those who have big dreams with no apparent way to achieve them. The pages will show you how to realize that dream and still have no money, which I kind of like the idea of it. It's like, yeah, you can be poor, not have much money and still live out your dreams. You could still be a playboy. Yeah. 
So he said, if we did it, so can you. It's not about the money, but the wisdom gained from the experience of living outside the box, which is what we are all after. It's your job to create the dream and I hope it helps. It is my wish that this is more of a manual on how to escape to that freedom and adventure. A reason to cruise the Pacific Islands and the world to meet the people and lifestyles of foreign lands, laugh with them, learn their language and the attitude you need so that you don't take an old recipe of dull, predictable living and transpose it to your future dreams. I mean, I like the idea here. That's nice. I don't think that his title matches that description no, at all. It no. makes uh, it's when you say playboys of like I'm I'm wondering if his editor was like, "Hey, um, let's lose the word playboys." Like that just and he's like, "No, but that was a playboy." He's like, "You don't understand. <laughs> this is uh the category I was in." Right. Through these pages you will learn to look upon adversity as an opportunity to be greater, for you will never know the greatness without adversity. If this is not you, then at least experience it through this armchair adventure. Do it in your mind. Become immersed in the journey as you read the pages for the brain doesn't really know the difference. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I was actually just recently having a conversation with my brother about perception and how your brain is really the thing that's perceiving everything. Uh, yeah, totally. So how do you know what is reality? It's all about perception and expectations. This is true. So he, last thing he says, make the move now instead of going through life wishing you had with an ocean of dreams waiting. May the wind always be at your back. I thought that was a really nice, nice like kind of forward on the book. Yeah. I, and you know, the like I said, yeah, the title's weird, but I liked what he said. What is John Glenny's advice if you ever are upside down in a trimer in? <laughs> are you asking me? I'll tell you. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. He says, in that whole four months adrift, I never had one doubt I wouldn't get out of it. So there's a little positive attitude right there. The only thing I didn't know was how. We survived 119 days on an upturned Rose Noel before finally being able to being blown ashore on Great Barrier Island near Auckland. My best advice to prepare for a situation such as mine is to lie down in your bed and turn your boat upside down. Now, I had to think about that for a second. I was like, how would you do that? But he's mentally saying like, lie in your bed and picture everything like you're looking around, picture it all upside down. And then ask yourself, where would you sleep? Will the water in the tanks leak out of the air breathers? Make sure you fasten your hatches inside your vessel. Think about everything going upside down. How would you tie it down differently so they don't wash away? Even little things like dish rags. Right. You want those. Mm -hmm. So it's like making sure everything is like secured in a way that if it were to flip, you would be able to still get to it. Get or do to it. it. Yeah. Right. Then finally, stay with the boat. That's my story. Who doesn't love a good subscription box? I mean, seriously, it's like getting a surprise in the mail and it's not even your birthday. What makes it even better? When that surprise box includes hand-picked sustainable plastic swaps for your eco-conscious lifestyle. Each box is specially curated for you to redesign one area of your life without plastic. With Green Up, you get an amazing sustainable box every other month. So that's six boxes per year. You can also choose the perfect box to fit your needs. Right now, they have the summer box, but you can also choose other boxes, such as the clean home box, the kitchen box, the morning routine box, the workday box, and the market box for all of your shopping needs. Each of these boxes contains four to six artfully crafted, sustainable, and eco-friendly items that are curated around the theme and valued at double the box price. To sign up, go to our sponsor page at you'regonnadieoutthere.com and click the link. Go green up and reduce, reuse, and simplify. Get it, nature nerds.
I have an organization to support. Sweet. I wasn't sure when it's like this kind of thing where we go with it, but I thought the albatross was, as far as nature, it's just the coolest yeah. thing. You can go to the Tairoa Head Nature Preserve, their mm-hmm. website. It's managed by the New Zealand Department of Conservation, and they have a really good website. So yeah, like I said earlier, they have a Royal Albatross Center that has a live cam. And I went to it and I looked at it. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, there's also a link to all the organizations that locally there that you can support. Mm-hmm. And I'll put that link up and you can kind of read through them because there's a lot of different things. I mean, it's, some of it's supporting education. Mm-hmm. Some of it's supporting like directly to certain species like albatross or other things. Or yeah. So there's a bunch of them. So I think people can just, we'll just put this link. And then you can go there and check out their live cam and see what you'd like to, what, if anything, there interests you. Yeah, that's cool. But now we need to go here. Yeah, we do. I'll also list the links for all the information and where I got this, but I would check out the documentary. Like I mentioned earlier, a 2015 movie called Abandon. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get it on Amazon Prime. It was pretty good. It's pretty interesting. My husband and I watched it, but I actually got a lot more out of the documentary because it was the real guy's giving their thoughts and opinions. It was really interesting. And yeah. the mullet. I mean, just if anything, <laughs> tune in for that. So. Yes. So that's all I have for my story, Megan. I think I've given you a lot to think about. That was a great story. It is a great story. I enjoyed it yes. a lot. If you ever found yourself on a adventure to uh, Tonga on a trimaran, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like... You know, you're like, I'm going to do this. It's going to be so fun. There's something that crossed my mind when you first were talking about them getting together to like, he's forming this crew and he had to do it really quickly. And I'm just going to say that before you go on any adventure, what you need is some good team building. Like, I think that they did their team building later in this story with the homemade enema. That was some team building right there. That was some some trust fall. That was some, right? But it it might not have even gotten to that point (laughs) if they had done some, you know, trust falls in the beginning. (laughs) I definitely think team building of some sort. Like a build, build a strong foundation. You cannot just get on a ship with three people who are inexperienced and possibly frightened mm-hmm. uh, and then just make it. Yeah, I agree. Some kind of team building, maybe hardcore team building. I'm trying to think of like, like maybe an adventure closer to home. But yeah, you. So they had two mimic. days. So they could have spent one day doing some like some crazy like um, first aid yeah. kind of mm-hmm. um, or safety course work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some, and uh, then um, another one like foundations and team building. Definitely. Like they all have to work together to. Trust falls from like 40 feet up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that. <laughs> like, oh, damn, he died. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Team building. That'll build you up to that enema. <laughs> Team building and homemade enemas. That's, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> you never know when you're going to need a homemade enema. You know, just remember. <laughs> Circular motion. <laughs> that is good times. I'm sure that they're happy that they could tell the story. For sure. But we'll never know the real story. Maybe he really did give the enema. That's what I think. I oh, think really? So that you he really this whole time. gave the enema. <laughs> and they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it. They're like, here's our story. 
they're like, we were going to do it, but then he pooped anyway, so it was fine. And that's why they've never met again. Right? <sighs> yeah, I think if something like that happened, we'd be like, let's never speak of this. Do you think that when they had that feast at the dinner table, they're like cheersing and they're like, you know. They're laying down some ground rules. Cheers to the enema, but let's never speak of it again. What if that dinner, they all sat around and like could have gotten to a phone. They could have phoned the police yeah. already, but mm-hmm. they decided to sit down and have that dinner and go over everything together. Right. Let's like, get our story straight. Get the stories together. Look, if you yeah. talk about this, I'll sue your ass or this is... Right. Yeah. There's certain things that are going to be okay and not okay mm-hmm. afterwards. Maybe they were recapping. Maybe maybe they were like, hey, listen, you know, Phil, we were definitely going to kick you off the boat. <laughs> we were going to murder you, possibly eat you. Luckily, you came through with some fish. And so. then we liked you. Yeah. And then yeah. it was cool. But just so you know. I bet you, you know, because I wondered why I was like, well, I think they're just hungry and they wanted to shower. Yeah. But if there was a house that close that they could hear a phone, like they could have done that already. Oh, I yeah, absolutely. I think they were like, let's just do this. It's like when you're when you're a mom and you come home from work, you know, and you just need those 10 minutes. Yeah, I just, just I just need 10 minutes to change my take off my bra. Don't don't ask me for anything. Fucking wash my face. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I need to get a snack. We're not talking about what's for dinner. Then we can talk. Give me 10 minutes. Right. That's what they had just to do. Ten, yeah. They're like, we've been they just needed a minute. Horrific ordeal. We just need a minute. All I can say is that in the movie and on the documentary, they talked mm-hmm. about drinking wine. <laughs> that would be another thing. I'll be like, just let me drink this wine. I have a glass of wine. I need a hot shower. And um, then we can then we can move on i'm thinking about that guy who came home to his summer home (laughs) and he's he's like like, whoa like god damn it just the drains are like clogged with like hair (laughs) all his razors are dull it's gross there's like hair in them like all of his favorite shirts are gone he's like what is this homemade enema doing in my bathtub (laughs) what the hell is this yeah. It's just, yeah, I thought about that too. I was like, whose house is this? I all, mean- of, all of his soap has like little short and curlies in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about that too, because in the movie, it's like a really freaking sweet house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, this poor person, you know, right? like coming back to that would just be disgusting all of his all of his and the way they were like ah like they were spraying like (laughs) drinks everywhere (laughs) like food like all over the place they were just like animals it's like that house in the movie with julia roberts where she escapes her abusive husband pretends like she dies but it's like the house is he has all of the cans are like faced a certain way (laughs) he's like that guy it's that guy yeah that's how it looks in the movie it's like a really nice house but in the documentary it's just kind of like a random house that you don't you don't feel so bad that was a great story. Thank you. Yeah, it was an interesting story. So that's for anybody in New Zealand that listens to us. That that was that was your New Zealand story. Enjoy. Hope you loved it. So fun. So we have a Patreon shout out. We do. Yes. Um, Thank you so much to Delaney. Thank you, Delaney. You are amazing. We got such a nice message from her and yes. she is 100% awesome. Don't we don't have to, to we don't want to give away all her cool stuff, but we have a lot in common basically. Yeah. Yes. Super cool. Yes. And we Super would cool. uh, yeah, it's I think that's the fun part is like we talked about before. It's like a lot of people we hear from, they're like, "I feel like you're our friends." And we're like, "We feel like you're our friend." Like if we if you lived here, we would be friends. We would all hang out together. We would definitely hang out together. We would definitely do some street skating. Yes. We would definitely go out on the canoe, talk about peace corps. 
I would I would maybe go on the canoe. I've been I've been with you one time. You went one time and then you were so red faced and angry afterwards. I was like, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that didn't go well. Well anyway, thank you so much. We appreciate the support. Yes. And we appreciate the positive feedback and And also your sweet name, Delaney. That's such a sweet name. Yes. I love it. Yeah. I appreciate all of it. And I, I'm glad we're making new friends. Yeah. Yay. So I guess that's it for now. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.